Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf, recording in my home office with special guest appearances from my cat chicken, probably. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that has influenced their own work in some small way. Today, I'm very excited to have writer, actor, Mary Holland here with me. Hi, Mary. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, um, we were just showing uh, off our respective cats. Yes. <laughs> um, which you can't do in a studio, which is one of the best parts about Zoom recording. That's right. Um, so for those of you who need a little introduction to Mary, please let me give you a this is your life version of her career. Uh, so Mary is an actor, improviser and writer from southwestern Virginia. After graduating from Northern Illinois University, she began performing at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater with comedy groups Wild Horses, JV and Ask Cat, the flagship improv show there. Uh, those performances led her to spots on the Comedy Bang Bang show and her chameleonic nature led her to memorable guest and recurring appearances on shows, including Silicon Valley, Parks and Rec, The Mindy Project, Fresh Off the Boat, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, The Good Place, Homecoming, New Girl, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and so many others. On Blunt Talk, she played Shelley Tinkle, the most scandalously ambitious member of the talk show team. And on Veep, she played the recurring role of Shawnee Tans, the alpha girlfriend who tries to shave Jonah into a political candidate. On the film side, Mary's appeared in Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates, Unicorn Store, and a personal favorite of the shows because we had the directors on, Greener Grass. Um... Definitely check out that episode, too. Uh, there is, uh, I believe, some comments about Mary and her performances there and the actors, so you can get, you know, an extra thing in that. But her most recent film is one Mary also co-wrote uh, with director Clea Duvall. It's called Happiest Season. And depending on your demographic, you may have spent time arguing about which characters should have ended up together in this delightful Christmas rom-com about an uptight and in-the-closet overachieving woman who brings her very out girlfriend to family Christmas, and hijinks ensue. Alongside Mary, the film stars Kristen Stewart, Mackenzie Davis, and Dan Levy, and was one of the most watched releases of Hulu's history, which must have been like a nice little thing to get. It sure was. What a that was a real Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, the movie that you chose to talk about today is one that I did not foresee. Um, based on the project that I'm now I'm thinking about like what would Mary really want to be doing? Like <laughs> mm-hmm. what does she really want to write? Uh, mm-hmm. it is the game. Yes. Can you give us a little explanation on why this is one of your fave genre films? Well, I have discovered recently, I would say like in the last, I've always been a fan of these movies, but I think I've really honed in on it being a favorite genre of mine in the last like four years. I love thrillers, psychological thrillers, and specifically ones that were made in the 90s. I I find that that, that is a very... The psychological thriller genre is very specific. And then that subset of the ones that were made like in the late 80s into the 90s is its own genre almost, I feel like. And The Game is probably one of the first psychological thrillers I think that I ever saw. And I'm somebody who... I, I, I love escape rooms. Yeah. I love puzzles. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big game head. I, I, I'm really interested in, in all of that stuff. And so to me, this movie is such a perfect marriage of thriller. And then it's also, it feels like interactive in a way for the audience. Like it feels like we're playing the game too. Mm-hmm. And I love that. How, it, how it, you really feel like you're, you are Michael Douglas trying to, you know, figure this whole situation out. And I think that's probably why it's one of my favorites. 
Can you imagine being Michael Douglas in the 90s? Like how cool that would be. What a like, life. What <gasps> a life. Oh my God. We have I have so many quotes from him. He is just such a professional. Um, yeah. And yeah. we'll get into kind of like his process and the way that he views movies um, uh, later in the show. But, uh, you know, I think you are in a, a group with myself included where we've been going through like every 90s psychological thriller movie that we possibly can. Every one I can find. Yeah. So I think that there's going to be a lot of listeners out here who identify with uh, your new obsession of the last four years. Um, but for those of you who haven't seen the game, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. As always, my motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch the game first, this is your shot. And now that you're back, let me introduce, yes. introduce the game with what I think is a short synopsis with how much is going on. Please bear with me. I will try to get through this very quickly. Written by John Brancato and Michael Ferris, who also wrote The Net, you might know, uh, and directed by David Fincher for release in 1997, the game stars Michael Douglas as ultra-wealthy businessman Nicholas Van Orton. We meet him on his birthday as he goes about his boring, emotionless day. But his brother Conrad, played by Sean Penn, unexpectedly comes into town and gifts Nicholas a game, quote-unquote. The troubled Conrad seems happy and fulfilled, and he says it's because he participated in the game in London. I think you'll like this. I did. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. I'll call him. And he thinks it would do Nicholas some good, too. Unfortunately, he is slim on details. Nobody talks about what the game is. Nicholas reluctantly, though, visits CRS to inquire about the game, where he's subjected to numerous physical and mental tests for hours. What is this for? What's well, give us an overall sense of your capabilities? No, what is this for? What are you selling? Oh, it's a game. A game? Specifically tailored for each participant. Only to get a phone call that his application has been rejected. Boo. Later, Nicholas dines at a restaurant where a server named Christine spills wine on him and gets fired. He's given a note to follow her. He rushes out after her and to, uh, to apologize. Pardon me, miss. Oh, great, it's you. I don't know how this works, but you have something for me. I, uh, I received this, uh, this note. What are you babbling about, psycho? Then helps a collapsed man. The two ride in an ambulance to a hospital together, only to realize it is not a hospital. Wait a minute. This is CRS. What's CRS? This is the company I was telling you about, the one that gave me the, uh, the gift certificate. This is their building. Everyone disappears. This is just like a weird stage. Nicholas and Christine then navigate their way out of the building, and Nicholas apologizes for getting her involved in this game thing. Then they outrun a police dog and hoof it to Nicholas's office. He sends her home in a cab after she shows her red bra. This is important. Um, <laughs> someone then breaks into his home and paints over everything. But Conrad shows up and says he's been taken by CRS and begs forgive begs forgiveness for getting Nicholas mixed up in this before running away. Jesus, what I think what I almost got you into. What are you saying? Oh, I'm so fucked. They just fuck you and they fuck you and they fuck you. And just when you think it's all over, that's when the real fucking starts. I right, calm down, just take a breath. Nicholas tracks down Christine but realizes she's a plant and the two escape together from CRS agents with guns. She explains to him it was always about the money and that CRS has already drained his accounts dry. They already got it, Nicholas. 
Then she overhears his account passwords when he calls to check on his money. Oh, big mistake. They get to his summer house and Christine drugs him. He wakes up in a tomb in Mexico with nothing and has to sell his watch to get a bus ticket home. He gets to his house and retrieves a hidden gun, then meets his ex to borrow her car. But he sees a guy on TV commercial that looks like the guy at CRS. He's an actor on television. And he realizes, oh man, that actor was in on the con. He tracks that actor down, forces him to go to the real CRS, where he enters a cafeteria and sees all the familiar faces he's interacted with over the past few days. Everything that has happened is a simulated con. Nicholas takes Christine hostage and goes up to the roof. She tries to tell him his money is all there, actually, and that this was just part of the game, too. Because it's fake. It's part of your game. Don't you start with me now! Don't you fucking start with me! This is all the game! All right, bullshit. But he doesn't believe her. Some people begin cutting the door from the inside out to get them, and not knowing what to believe, he shoots the second the door opens, hitting Conrad in the chest. You shot him. It was a birthday party. Conrad had a cake for him. Distraught, Nicholas jumps off the roof, just like his father did. But he lands safely in a beautiful ballroom, where his real birthday party begins with his very alive brother bringing out the cake. What is this? It's your birthday present. Okay. There's oh, other stuff, Great too. job. Thanks, Mary. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, I wanted to get into um, something that, that I thought was interesting. And when I was listening to the commentary of this, I thought it was fascinating. Michael Douglas was talking about the... Um, the opening credit sequence, right? Because you've got these flashbacks of um, like home movies, essentially, that are uh, kind right. of setting up who these characters are and the relationship to the father, which is really weird because if you watch Succession, you're like, this I was is just, a Succession I was just, opening. I know. I was just thinking that when I was rewatching it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is identical to what Succession does. And it does such a good job of capturing the, the distance between like, the the parent figure and the kids like mm -hmm. the the sort of opposed uh, nature of you know w when the father and son are together in a picture that it's not it's not at all like uh, a very like loving relationship yeah you can tell one has to believe that the succession people absolutely knew what they were doing yeah because uh, it's an effective thing this home movie is great it's great flashback it sets it up it gives you the tone mm -hmm. um but michael douglas was saying that as an actor you know he came into this and he didn't know that that's what the opening was going to be and that that would become you know essentially like the the basis for flashbacks that they would put in later on as like the home oh, wow. movies and so for him he said Quote, I wish I'd seen the home movies when we started because it would have helped me a lot, actually. It would have set the tone for how self-destructive my character really was, end quote. So he was just oh, like, I didn't really yeah. know. And he said that he would have maybe, um, he was talking about how like maybe he would have played something a little bit differently. Interesting. Um, just knowing that that was the opening. Right. Um, and like just having all the pieces. And, you know, I'm curious about that in terms of being a performer, because you, you know, especially if you're doing like a guest spot on something like mm. do you have all the pieces of what's there to like be informed enough to make a character or. I mean, usually, I, well, speaking from like doing a guest spot on a TV show, especially one that has is something like um, Curb Your Enthusiasm or something that that is such a well-oiled machine. Oh, totally, And, yeah. you know, the, 
in a lot of cases, the, these casts have been together for years and years, and you are stepping in to do a day or two when they're they've been there for the last few months. And so, um, I think that I think that like characters that I've played, guest star spots that I've played, the characters are so specific and are such a um, a punctuation mark that it it doesn't feel like I need too much more info than what is given to me in the episode mm-hmm. with the character. Um, so, but, but I do, I could totally see if you're doing a movie and you have, you're trying to build this, this character over the course of one narrative, it would be so helpful to, to have all the information and especially, especially stuff that, that about your past and things. It's it's surprising to me that that wasn't run by him. Um, <laughs> I mean, you could tell these when you can tell when he's like a little bit, he's so honest with his emotions in the commentary yeah. and his interviews where he's just like, this is a thing that annoys me. And you're like, yeah, just say it. Like, don't be like super nice. Just like, I wish yeah. this was it. Like, I'm annoyed by that. Just fix it next time. Like, it's fine. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Is your, I mean, is your impulse to go into kind of extremes of characters when you're kind of building what you are? Like maybe, maybe the idea that like if you're comfortable going to extremes, then that person will just kind of fit in anywhere within the context of a show. I mean, I I don't think of it as going to extremes. I I guess I sort of conceptualize characters as I build them as having their own, they have their own arc and narrative. And we are seeing one day in their life that that goes on Mm -hmm. after they have this interaction with the main character of this other story. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't say that like I go to extremes, but I do try to be as specific as possible with who this person is, what's driving them, what their reason is for speaking to this other character. I I think that one thing I learned from the extensive (laughs) uh, theater training that I went through where we did almost exclusively dramas and and like Chekhov and stuff like that Mm -hmm. um, is that generality is the enemy of a good performance. uh, A vague a vague sort of general sense of who a person is is not good enough. You have mm-hmm. to be so specific. And that can manifest sometimes in extreme behaviors. But um, but yeah, I, I try to be as specific as possible. Yeah. I mean, when you can, you have control of that when you're writing, obviously. But like when you show right. up and you don't have control of that, do you ever like read scripts or things where you're just like, what are we doing here? Like, why? <laughs> why? I mean, I, I haven't actually played that many characters that have to lay out that much exposition. I, th- I feel like there are characters that that are tasked with that in movies and TV shows, but I have never been cast in those parts. So I, I'm not totally sure what the experience is of of having like a lump of dialogue that is truly just groundwork lane and in expository and i i can really imagine that that would be a big challenge and it would be something i think that if i were given that i would hope to be able to work with the director to like make it feel alive and not yeah. not just like here's information <laughs> that i have yeah, to I give mean- 
It has to be something like, I would say like in pilots probably where like everyone's trying to like yeah. know, introduce a, qu- a character as quickly as possible. Their main dilemma, the ensemble, everything <laughs> else, you know. And as part of the fun of as a writer, if you challenge yourself with that, if you 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 know what needs to happen in a scene, you know the information you need to get out. And if you can challenge yourself to get as much of that information out non-verbally as you can have it mm-hmm. have have us as the audience be plunged right in the middle of this moment where it be, it can become clear to us based on our own ability to read behavior who these people are like you you don't it's 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 fun to challenge yourself to do that and it also the audience feels like they're participating in this with you like they're like they're also doing math in their head of what they're seeing um, so it's not just like, here you go, I'm feeding you this story. It's like, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm also participating because I'm, I'm gleaning facts about these people and putting it together myself. Well, I mean, the game is very much about gleaning facts and putting it together. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we come back. We're actually going to get right back into the puzzle piecing of this. We'll be right back. It's your host, April Wolf, here to talk to you about Storyblocks. Um, so Storyblocks is dedicated to being the world's best royalty-free stock media subscription service with an ever-growing library of stock assets, including music, images, sound effects, and more. So, you know, what does that mean for you? It means that there is an affordable subscription plan and a ton of tools, and that with the unlimited all-access plan, you can get unlimited downloads of everything in their library. And even if your subscription ends, everything you've downloaded is yours to keep. So what do you use those for? Uh, I don't know. Maybe you want to put together a commercial. Maybe you want to put together a little reel. Maybe you want to have a little uh, insert in your short film or something. Like there's tons of stuff there. There's tons of sound effects, everything that you could ever ask for. So in 2020, Storyblocks also launched Restock. So that is an initiative to increase diversity in their library. And if you ever looked at other libraries, you're going to notice that there's a startling uh, whiteness to them and there's a startling um, sameness to them. But Restock is their attempt to make sure that the library contains a lot of images, a lot of video of um, Black people, Indigenous people, people of color. And there's a plan to expand that scope to include more underrepresented groups in the future, too. So keep a lookout for that. The best thing you can do, though, is just explore their library. Find out if you like it. Maybe there's something you can use. And then subscribe today at storyblocks.com switchblade. Again, that's storyblocks.com switchblade. I'm going first. It's me, Jackie Keisha. Man, she's always this bossy. Uh, <laughs> hi. I'm Lori Kilbarton. Uh, we're a bunch of stand-up comics, and uh, we've been doing comedy like 60 years total with <laughs> both of us, but we look amazing. And, uh, working out. We drop every Monday on Max Fun, and it's called The Jackie Laurie Show, and you could listen to it and learn about comedy and learn about anger management and all the things. And Jackie is married but childless, and I'm unmarried but childful. So together, we make <laughs> one complete woman. Is that just what that going to end? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we try to make Kyle laugh just like that and say, oh, my God, every episode. It's a good job. Jackie and Lori Show, Mondays, only on Maximum Fun. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Mary Holland, and we're talking about the game. Um, so something that is uh, brought up a lot about this movie, and it really kind of separates it from other movies like it of this era and other eras, is the adherence of David Fincher's rules of no close-ups or very few inserts. Um, and it's a really purposeful thing that uh, that I want to talk about. He said, quote, here's the tricky thing. You're making a movie and you have control over everything an audience sees or hears for two hours. They know you can do anything. So the question is what you don't do, not what you do do. Every time you go to a close-up, the audience knows subconsciously that you've made an editorial decision. A movie where everyone is lying, you can run them ragged by showing them close-ups. You can do it as a red herring or you can do it before you really want to, to set it up what you want to do. But every time you underline something, the audience becomes aware of it and they start to catalog these things. And you don't want to exhaust that. By page 60, you're getting to a moment where you go, oh, all that stuff is bullshit. My tact on it was I wanted to present it in a wide frame and as unloaded a POV as possible, a simple proscenium way. This is what's going on, and this is what he sees through Michael Douglas. You have to be cautious in not doing too much cinematic engineering, end quote. Mm, um, it's I love just that. really lovely and something that maybe I didn't notice the first time I was watching it, like in the 90s. You know, it's not. Right. No, for sure. I, I, I really appreciate his respect for the audience. That, that comes across in how thoughtful he is about understanding what how they're experiencing this the whole time yeah uh, I feel like as a as a director and a filmmaker I'm sure it, it can be it can be so easy to just focus on what your vision is and what you want to do with something and and how you want to tell the story that in order to like really bring the audience into that process with you I think is so so cool well, I mean, you do that as a writer as well. Yeah, yeah. I it's so important that I it's it's a really interesting balance between having an idea or a story or a message that you want to convey and you want to show and then also having the audience be not an afterthought in that process that the mm -hmm. audience you're, is in your head and with you along the way while still staying true to your vision, but also appreciating what their experience is going to be. Yeah, I like, you know, what he's saying about n trying not to run the audience ragged. Yes. <laughs> like you don't want, like, you don't want them to be tired. You want them to be like fascinated and maybe confused at times, like, but, you know, a very kind of fine confusion, not, uh, yeah. not infuriated. <laughs> well, yeah. And especially with, with a movie like this, where it, we are playing the game too. We are in the game as well and are having the growing paranoia of is everything around me in, in this everything around Michael Douglas, everything mm -hmm. he encounters. Is that part of the game? Is that part of the game? Like we we are built uh, up, we build up to that paranoia in the, in the same way. And I think there, the, it, it's so complicated, the layers of like building that and not crossing a line where you just make people be like, well, I don't, I don't get this, <laughs> which, you know, to me, like, I, I, I don't know if you've discussed Tenet on, on this show. But no, we have not. No. 
I could not it that to me crossed the line where I was like, well, I don't get any of this. Not I don't had a, I was like following it. And then at a certain point, I was like, I will simply never understand it. <laughs> and uh, and I, 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 I appreciate what David Fincher did so much because it, it's challenging, but it doesn't feel impossible to wrap your mind around. Something that I think that you would be uh, uh, interested in, in is, is the fact that Conrad, the character, um, was not a brother initially in, in the early drafts. It wasn't something that, that came until very late. So the, the writers were saying, quote, a major break that came in one of the drafts we didn't work on was making Conrad a younger brother instead of a best friend. We had this notion that Nicholas should be an only child and had grown up in isolation. Once the character became a brother, suddenly the jump became a lot easier to swallow because there's so much emotional bonding that goes on between brothers that suddenly you can accept him doing this thing just to appease his brother and work off some baggage from childhood, end quote. Um, and in terms of, you know, I've talked about this with... Um, some other filmmakers and interviews and things. Um, there's a movie called Raw by Julia Ducarneau, and she was saying that, like, she also didn't have her characters be sisters in the movie. But there's certain things that, like, if you make a character a sibling, you automatically have license to do weird things and to push these characters even further than you thought you could because they have that weird childhood blood bond. Yes, that, that bond. Yes, and I, I think that's something with Happiest Season that Clea and I were really mindful of too is having, putting Harper, uh, the character um, that who has not come out to her family yet, putting her in the position where she's back in her childhood home, she's surrounded by her sisters who, you know, as you said, it's a very, very specific type of bond and relationship and the behavior that that elicits from somebody is so different than if you were to like go see them you know at a summer home with with their girlfriends or whatever the the, the very ancient history that just comes inherently with having a sibling whether you got along with them or didn't it's mm -hmm. it's so rooted and so deep in your bones that it's almost not even conscious the 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 effect it can have on you and then also how important that bond is to you um so yeah i think i that's an amazing choice to make him a brother and i love too that they the the, the these brothers went in such wildly different directions one followed in his father's footsteps and the other one was seemingly you know had some drug issues and like totally mm -hmm. was sort of a, more of a wild child and having them negotiate how different they are as well is is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a funny thing to think about. I, I've had this experience myself too, where like one of the biggest, uh, uh, most important changes came way late way late in the draft we're like, like oh i mean like i've spent months on this and right <laughs> <laughs> this is the one thing that it should have been and it seems like it should have been more obvious you know right right yeah it is really fascinating when you live with the script for a long period of time and do multiple drafts on it because I, I remember when we would be doing drafts of Happiest Season, every time we'd finish a draft, I'd be like, well, I don't know how it's going to be. I don't I can't imagine it being any different than this. Like, this is what it is. 
Mm -hmm. This is what it is. And then, of course, somebody gives you a note or you get some feedback or you like have time away from it and you revisit it and you're like, oh my, no, we have to change this and this and this. It really is this breathing organism that is constantly changing. And when you can unlock a big change like that, where it's like, oh, that should have been there the whole time. That's such uh, an amazing feeling as a writer. It's like you, you, um, you found the key. Well, and then there's also the thing that sometimes those changes that you're looking for, the new keys, actually come with casting, like new dimensions to things. Because one of the things that I thought was interesting, too, is like, okay, so they made Conrad a brother, and then they cast Sean Penn pretty late in the process. But it's they realize that Sean Penn can't play a purely nice character that there's that there's <laughs> right. something kind of sinister behind him and so it actually adds a different dimension and he's uh david fentry said quote i'd always seen conrad as being the guy who has seen the light he's totally reborn he's open and friendly and you can't understand why nicholas is so cautious of him but i realized sean penn no matter how open and true you're not going to turn your back on him Ugh, he just brings yes. another current there when they were rehearsing sean knows he can't present himself that way as much as he tries he knows it's a performance it's an effort for him end quote when you've participated in casting was did you notice any kind of difference in the characters that you had written oh my gosh i well so once we were finished with doing our our rewrites on happiest season clea as the director really took the reins and she was uh so in charge of casting all so I wasn't I from at that point had become an actor who was now going to be playing a part in this movie mm-hmm. so I didn't sit in on any of the the casting process but watching these actors and we were so lucky with the the phenomenal actors that we got to come in and play with us watching them take these roles and inhabit them it there were so many sides to these characters that i didn't realize or know before until mm-hmm. these people brought their specific sensibilities to them like i when i if i think about with tipper specifically mary steenburgen i remember when we were writing tipper we, we were making each other laugh so much with how biting and passive aggressive tipper was and it's under this veil of uh politeness and elegance or whatever Mm -hmm. but what mary brought to it was a sort of brightness and a lightness with how she said things that made the undercutting of her remarks that much more effective and piercing Mm -hmm. and um so yeah i think i think having an actor bring their own sensibility to these characters will will teach you so much more about the characters that you wrote than you could ever predict. Uh, We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more things, the game, and also Happiest Season. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Janet Farney, host of the JV Club podcast. Ah, high school. Was it a time of adventure, romance, and discovery? Class of 95, we did it! Or a time of angst, disappointment, and confusion. We're all tied together by four years of trauma at this place, but enjoy adulthood, I guess. The truth is, it was both. 
So join me on the JV Club podcast where I invite some great friends like Kristen Bell, Angela Kinsey, Oscar Nunez, Neil Patrick Harris, and Keegan-Michael Key to talk about high school, the good, the bad, and everything in between. My teenage mood swings are getting harder to manage. The JV Club. Find it on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Mary Holland, and we're talking about the game. Um, So uh, something about this movie is that it was shot completely out of continuity, um, much like many TV shows and films, um, uh, because the schedule just doesn't allow you to shoot in continuity. It's, you know, really tough. But for an actor who's trying to uh, calibrate their emotions in something like this film, it is um, pretty amazing to kind of step back and think about uh, how all of these characters were able to track their arcs from day to day. Totally. But um, Michael Douglas said, quote, we shot 108 days. We were so far out of continuity. And I'd asked David what he'd heard of me before. And he talked to the producer of The War of the Roses. And he said, I always know where I am in the movie. It's a big problem for directors. Actors tend to be involved in the moment instead of where will all of this fit in the movie. If you shoot the scene today and the next one in four months, how do you maintain a level where you know where you're at? You begin to have in your head, you have a feeling of where it all is. It's a lot to do with tempo. So there are some actors who act very slowly because they put it up to the editor to cut the performances together. But I like to act in real time. Sometimes I act too fast even. And sometimes when you're doing these pictures, when you're in every scene, I give too much of myself even to the movie, end quote. Um, By the end part, I think what he's talking about is that he puts too much of his own personality into the characters because he's acting so quickly that it right. becomes very much like Michael Douglas, which you can see him. at times. Yeah. 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 Because there's times when he's like, he comes out, like, especially, and I would say what the the times when he was adding those comic moments, like I, I could see that, it, like, as I was rewatching, I'm like, oh, I see. This is like the Michael Douglas segment. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, and something that I really relate to is this idea of, of in trying to help stitch together a story when it is being shot so wildly out of order mm-hmm. and you have to be in one emotional state for one scene and then the next day you got to be in this emotional state and and making sure that you are you as an actor are helping to craft that arc i really relate to the to the how <laughs> that to me feels heady and something that I don't know that I would be naturally inclined to map out for myself yeah, but yeah, what yeah. what feels more true and organic and I think what what Michael is saying leads to the best performance from him and what I I agree with for me too is I as long as I can keep my focus on what it, what scene I'm doing at that time in the moment and can uh, access the emotions I need to in in that scene, then I trust that it's all going to be stitched together <laughs> in a way that that makes sense, and that the director, of course, is is helping to guide me in that direction. Mm-hmm. But I think having the weight of like, oh my gosh, how how do I track all of this? It would be it would feel really overwhelming, and I, I would just keep going back to in the moment what what's hap- what's happening right in front of me right now yeah um yeah i would need to make paper notes i would have to make like 
I because I, I you know, like that, that acting is not my thing. And uh, it's I, I don't know, like being able to be like, I need to access this emotion like here, just like <laughs> write down, like for every single scene, like this is what I'm doing. Um, I just right. I don't know how an actor can just kind of keep it in his head in the way that Michael Douglas does. I mean, get, get him on here. I know. <laughs> Michael, tell us your secret. And, and we've got Michael Douglas calling in. Oh, um, he's calling? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> he's got he's got a lot of time. That's great. Him and Catherine just, you know, relaxing uh, just out the pandemic. Out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to get into more things that make Michael Douglas impatient. I can't wait. <laughs> Let's hear him. <laughs> One thing is that he doesn't have any patience for DPs who call him to the set too early. And I'm curious because I think maybe you might have a different approach. Like, I'm wondering if, like, people who are predominantly in dramas have a different um, attitude towards the people who are predominantly in comedies. Because he said, quote, one of the worst frustrations for an actor is to be called to the set waiting for lighting and then to not get your time. There's another tweak that needs to be done or something. I used to be forgiving, but I'm not anymore. Everyone needs their time. When you need me, you call me and then it's my time. You'd arrive and you'd do your rehearsals. It was for you. Too many times, though, the cameraman is all call them in, call them in, and then they want to overlap doing their lighting and it doesn't allow the actor to take the stage. They need that moment to center themselves and become the center of attention. When you have two or three people doing their thing, it doesn't work, end quote. Ooh. Yeah, I love that. I re- I, I respect that he he's like, oh, I used to have patience. I don't anymore. I'm like, yeah. wow, can you, you can do that? <laughs> yeah. You can like lose patience. Um. Yeah, I I agree with you that I think this this really does apply to potentially apply to more dramatic works or actors. I mean, because comedy, like a comedy actor. I mean, are you even just dying to get out on the set to like feel it, or to have that energy, or do you like want to be removed from things? Or like, it's a what? little bit of both. It's a little of both. And I also. I am a bit of an introvert, so I I do need my alone time to like recharge and refuel. Mm-hmm. But being on set, I don't I don't feel uh too much impatience if there's things still being worked out while we're there and like we're about to shoot the scene because it's it's a kind of playful vibe in general, like a, a yeah. collaborative. So it. But I can imagine when you're doing a drama and you're like, I've been prepping for this scene in my room and I I have to like get to this this heightened emotional state and now I'm just standing around and I'm not yeah. able to like launch into what I've been preparing for. I can imagine. Yeah. So frustrating. Yeah. I mean, like did Kristen McKenzie, did they have to kind of take a moment when they had to do their kind of tearful things towards the yes end. well we we all kind of did because uh, as we crafted that arc it was the whole family is having <laughs> this like series of revelations about not only what's happening with harper but that that has this ripple effect with the rest of their family of like oh what have what have i been hiding am i hiding myself and for the parents, like, what have we done with our children where they feel like they have to hide? So it, it sort of was a crashing together of all these different emotional peaks for all these characters. Mm-hmm. So I remember shooting that scene and all of us, you know, Victor and Mary and Allison and Mackenzie and Kristen, 
and I were all so cognizant and mindful of all of us when it was our turn needing to like reach that space Mm -hmm. and giving each other alone time to do that and um and of course like Cleo was so involved in talking through those moments with us so it still had this feeling of collaboration but I there was a real sense of respect of like okay I need to go in the corner and like (laughs) yeah it put, put my head in this space yeah. for a minute. And I would imagine Clea's kind of taking you aside separately. Yes. Kind of quietly talking you through. Yes. Yeah. She is. Yes. She was so, uh, such a wonderful director and so considerate of all of her actors and where they were and what they needed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Another thing that I think that maybe we don't talk about when it comes to like kind of accessing a, a good performance um, that plays into what Michael Douglas is saying of like having like patience, I think has to do with um, scenes that that um, can go on where the actors don't have to like think about where we're cutting or like, just, oh, we're just getting coverage, but like actually being able to play the scene out all the way yeah. through and that the luxury of those times. Um, because that's one of the things that they were talking about in the commentaries, how a lot of the natural lighting elements allowed for performances to essentially be uncut for them to get coverage from, you know, like mm. the, the same take for, for multiple actors. Um, and they were talking about, quote, uh, we want it to look like it's very natural. This is the way an office would look, the way a home would work. Um, in its simplicity, I think it gives the film a certain kind of elegance in us holding back and holding back consistently. It gives the film an elegance of regalness, too. There's no fill light except for one light over Michael Douglas at points, and it's a top light, usually. Other scenes are lit practical. When you work in a circular scene where everyone is sitting around a table, for instance, it's a good application to use a must ball. Actors love it because they're not sitting there waiting for us they can stay in the moment end quote and a must ball is just like the very large kind of like global dome light over it where some people might be in shadow at some point in time but like it's a very natural thing and because you don't have to have like lighting all these setups. different setups yeah exactly it's just a single one up there then they can actually kind of play around getting getting that really good coverage from around a table and a table scene yeah. ha- is like gr- grueling and excruciating oh my god we when we were shooting blunt talk we had so many scenes in the conference room and i remember every time before we'd have a scene we'd be like here we go (laughs) it's like it's a beast and there, there were seven of us to cover i feel like when we would do those scenes and it's so many different angles and yeah, the, it, it giving your actor being cognizant of their energy level with with how mm-hmm. them being able to like really riff with each other and find a chemistry with each other and not have to like kill that momentum with mm-hmm. different setups is it is definitely a luxury. Comedies, I think, especially in TV though. I mean, some people will shoot like multi-cam and allow like, like make sure that you get like the the same take, you know, that you're mm-hmm. shooting all coverage, hopefully simultaneously. Sometimes it's it's a luxury. It doesn't happen all the time. But I'm curious, you know, like, does that does that kind of break things up ever for you as an actor? Does it throw you off if you're like, if you have to keep doing the same take over and over again just to get your coverage on it or? Uh, I It has. I, I definitely can experience getting into my head about a moment, especially 
especially if if we've been if in the other person's coverage for example we found this great rhythm with each other and we had this funny moment that we both enjoyed and the the director enjoyed and then Mm -hmm. it turns around on me and I need to do now my side of that or recreate my side of that yeah and I it's the the director or whoever is like so maybe more like you did the the those first few times nothing will send me faster into a a a hole of (laughs) self-loathing an insecurity of like oh my god i'm not doing it the way i was before how can i recreate that performance and it's it's really tough and i i so i've for sure gotten into my head about it but i think in the same way that i think about tracking the overall arc of a character in a movie as as i've learned that as long as i'm able to be fully present with mm-hmm. the actor I'm working with and and engage with them and be affected by them, then it I don't have to overthink it or overcraft something. Yeah. It, it, it allow it to breathe and change and and not try to lock anything in uh, leads to even, you know, sometimes even better discoveries than in that initial wide or something. It's like maybe, so are you saying like maybe understanding that like, okay, I did better, better quote unquote in those first couple of takes, but like, I'm never going to be able to recreate that. What can I access to get this, you know, where I need it to be? Yeah. How, what if I just take that expectation off myself and I just like rediscover a new moment in this interaction? Yeah. Um, and I think having that kind of looseness and freedom will more often than not lead to finding a moment like you had done before. Yes. <laughs> then, then trying to like, okay, well, I know I raised my eyebrows on this line, and then I, you know, <laughs> and being so meticulous about because you don't you want your performance to feel like hot blooded. You don't want it yeah. to feel like in your head calculated yeah Yeah. i want to thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about the game and your own work and happiest season is available to watch on hulu greener grass is available to watch i think on prime and maybe hulu as well i can't remember. yeah i can't remember either i I, it's on vod somewhere in streaming so yeah um and then what else what else do you do you have going anything that you you want um i mean Got working on some other movie ideas, and Clea and I are working on a, a TV show idea. So, uh, hoping to get those things cooking. But this past year, it's been um, as we're we're all <laughs> reshifting creative focuses, yeah. and um, it's been a great time for writing, which I'm grateful for. So, um, so yeah, I look forward to to experiment with different genres and who knows maybe a psychological thriller i have had lots of ideas i i absolutely look forward to seeing the deadline headline mary holland attached to the game to the gamier oh, the gamier and, the better 
(laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the show, Mary. Thanks for having me, April. This was so fun. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you would like to tell us what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And please check out our Facebook group too. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. They just fuck you and they fuck you and they fuck you. And just when you think it's all over, that's when the real fucking star Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.